Now, we come back to the daughters of Zelophad. Now, remember back in chapter 27 of Numbers, the daughters of Zelophad said, Hey, our father didn't commit any great sin against God and that kind of stuff, and he died of natural causes, but he died and he had no sons. And according to the law, all the land goes to sons, but we're all daughters. That means we're not going to get any land. And Moses goes to God. And God rules that if there are no surviving sons, then that land goes to the daughters, and they're allowed to have the same rights as a male does when it comes to inheriting the land and the name and the lineage of the father. So that was ruled. That was okay because Moses actually went to God on that one and ruled in his favor. In chapter 36, it says, Then the heads of the family groups of the Gileites and the descendants of Machir, the descendants of Manasseh, who were from the Josephite families, approached and spoke before Moses and leaders who were the heads of the Israelite families. So these women belonged to the tribe of Manasseh. And the heads of the tribes of Manasseh come to Moses with a, yeah, that's great, but. They said, Yahweh commanded my Lord to give the land as an inheritance by lot to the Israelites, and my Lord was commanded <coughs> by Yahweh to give the inheritance of our brother Zelophad to his daughters. Now, if they should be married to one of the men from another Israelite tribe, their inheritance would be taken from the inheritance of our fathers and added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry. As a result, it will be taken from the lot of our inheritance. And when the jubilee of the Israelites is to take place, their inheritance will be added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry. So their inheritance will be taken away from the inheritance of our ancestral tribe. So this is what they say, like, Okay, that's great and everything, but if they marry somebody from another tribe, you gave this land to our tribe. And they're going to take that land to that tribe, which means we're going to lose that land. And then when the year of Jubilee comes along, remember every 50 years, the land is supposed to return to the original owners. It's not going to return to them. It's going to return to the daughters and their descendants who of another tribe. Now, in some cases, you might think, well, that's not that big. There's only three women. But remember, this is the rule for every single family that dies without any sons but has daughters. So as time goes by, if you've got a family over here and a family over here and a family over here and they're marrying out and that kind of stuff, all of a sudden God's ordained tribal borders are completely screwed up. And not only are they swapping around, but now you might have these little islands of Levi or, or sorry, of Gad in the middle of Manasseh. And it's going to be like Westerville and Columbus. And like I pay Westerville taxes, but I go to Columbus schools, but I pay like them. But it, my, the cops are like um, Hilliard or whatever. It's just like all these weird things. And you're like, I have no idea what's going on anymore. That's going to present a serious problem. And it's a legitimate problem. Because this is God's ordained divine promise to them. And God takes tribal allotments so seriously that when people begin to play with the tribal allotments when we get to other books, God's going to kill them for it. So this is not just them being selfish, not losing land. This is a high priority to God and his theology and his blessings to the people. So it's a legitimate thing. So they go to Moses and say, how are we going to work this out? Because every decision you make presents a whole bunch of other decisions you have to figure out that you never thought about. God did, but. Verse 5. Then Moses gave a ruling to the Israelites by the word of Yahweh. 
What the tribe of the Josephites is saying is right. This is what Yahweh has commanded of the Zelphod's daughters. Let them marry whomever they think best, only they must marry within the family of their father's tribe. And this way the inheritance of the Israelites will not be transferred from tribe to tribe. But every one of the Israelites must retain the ancestral heritage. And every daughter who possesses an inheritance from any of the tribes of the Israelites must become the wife of a man from any family in their father's tribe, so that every Israelite may retain the inheritance of his fathers. No inheritance may pass from the tribe to tribe, but every one of the tribes of the Israelites must retain its inheritance. As Yahweh had commanded Moses, so the daughters of Zelphad did. For the daughters of Zelphad, Malhah, Tirzah, Holgoth, Milcah, and Noah were married to the sons of their uncles, and they were married into the families of the Massonites and the descendants of Joseph, and their inheritance remained in the tribe of their father's family. These are the commandments and the decisions of Yahweh commanded to the Israelites through the authority of Moses on the plains of Moab by the Jordan River opposite of Jericho. So basically what Yahweh says is, yes, but they have to marry within Manasseh. It has to stay within the tribe of what that woman belongs to. This is how the book ends. You're like, wow, that's kind of an interesting way to read a book on a tribal dispute. <laughs> But remember, the most important thing about all of Numbers is looking forward to the promised land. And this is incredibly crucial because this is about maintaining the promises of God's blessing of land in the promised land to his people. And these are very real practical situations of how to keep God's promises the way that they were meant to be, given real life complications that might enter that. So this is here for two reasons. One, this is the focus of the tribal allotments. And second, these books tend to end on positive notes in one way, but negatives on other. Here's what's interesting now. We've come to the end of numbers. And in one way, it ends on a positive note. And the positive note is that people are being taken care of. The Levitical cities are assigned. The Levites have what they have. Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh are given what they're given. And at the same time, they're right there at the promised land. This is the, probably the best ending of a book that we've seen so far. But at the same time, it's ending on a horrible, on a, on a theological negative note as well. So this is what the Bible is kind of doing here. Genesis ends on this positive note of like, wow, Jacob's family is not going to die of starvation. Egypt is going to provide security for them. Joseph, a man of God, has got an incredible, powerful position in the land. But that's a practical, positive note. Theologically speaking, it ends on an incredibly negative note because they're not even in the promised land. They were actually in the promised land, even though it didn't belong to them. Now they're not even in the promised land at all. And they're in under the rule of a foreign empire. So it's an incredible theological horrible note because the promises of God are even further away from them now than it ever was with Abraham. So there's this, I need more. So the book of Exodus begins with, and, continuing that on. And so you then see the Exodus, they get the law, that kind of stuff, and it ends on this positive note, practically speaking, that they have the tabernacle now. They have the law now. God is with them. He hasn't abandoned them. 
At the same time, it ends on this horrible theological note that they just got done rebelling in the golden calf and none of them can go into the tabernacle and worship God because they're all defiled. So you're like, oh. So you get to the next book, Leviticus, which begins with and. And you get to the end and it ends on this like positive note. Now they're all cleansed. Now they can all get into the, the, the tabernacle and worship God. But it ends on this horribly negative theological note because now you remember, okay, they're still not in the promised land. They're still not in the promised land. And we had this one roadblock. It took an entire book to get through this. What other things can we have? You want more. So you get the book of Numbers and it begins with and. And so you go through Numbers and it ends on this kind of practical note. Like they're at the promised land now. They've, they're dipping, they're figuring out, okay, Levitical cities and women who are, don't have any brothers and that kind of stuff. And it's all positive. And you're like, yay, the women are being taken care of and they're being honored. But at the same time, the tribal allotment of the tribes are not being threatened. That's very practical. But it ends on this horrible theological note of Manasseh and Reuben and Gad just stepped out of sight of the promises of God. And the question is, yes, now we're right on the border. And we're finally at the promised land, but they're still not in the promised land. And if they're going to pull something like this, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, what else might possibly happen that will threaten the unity and the promises of God in the land? And you kind of get the sense that, oh, we're so close, but then they go and do that, which doesn't completely threaten the land, but it's a huge scar on the promises of God. And it makes you begin to wonder, what do we have to look forward to in the book of Joshua? And you begin to realize that even the most faithful generation ever in the history of Israel is beginning their conquest by already screwing it up. And if the most faithful generation is like that, then what's going to happen when things are going downhill? And so this is kind of where you left at. You've got this horrible negative past now. You got the golden calf, you got the complaint in the wilderness, you got the Moabite women and Israel joining them, you've got this kind of lack of faith with the Reubenites and Manasseh, and you've got this disobedience, and but at the same time, like Israel's starting to become more faithful than it ever has been before, and they've got the tabernacle and they're cleansing, and, and they seem to really be wanting to do what God has commanded them, and you've got basically a whole bunch of scumbags who are being obedient to God. Oh, welcome to the human nature. And you realize nothing about this is black and white. Nothing about this is easy to figure out. Humans are complicated, they're messy, and nothing is just straightforward, evil or bad most of the time. And this is what you've got to deal with. And that's kind of how this book ends. Now what's interesting is that Deuteronomy will finish the Torah. Because Deuteronomy will come in as a bookend to the Torah, and Moses will give a speech, and he's going to make these points. You're horrible, evil scumbags. But at the same time, you have the capability to be obedient to God, and I know you can. But at the same time, I know you're going to fail. It's a very interesting, like, if he was your coach, you'd be thinking, this isn't a good halftime speech. Okay? <laughs> But he's summarizing all this, and he's going to make all these points. 
But at the same time, Deuteronomy is beginning a new future as well. It's the book into the beginning of a new chapter because Deuteronomy does not begin with and. It does not begin with and. So in a way, Numbers is the end of the story. So Deuteronomy is going to be the end of the story of the Torah in some way because it's the final cap and summary on the entire Torah. But in other ways, it's this is the end of the story and Deuteronomy is going to become the beginning of a new story of them actually entering into the land. And so you need to realize that there are basically two chapters in the book of the First Testament. And it's what's known as the Torah minus the fifth book, but kind of not. It's like that hinge book. But at the same time, there's what's called the Deuteronomic history. And the Deuteronomic history is all the history from Joshua to Chronicles in light of everything that Moses says in Deuteronomy. Now, I'll review all this next week when we talk about Deuteronomy. But you need to understand that's where we kind of are now. We're ending, we're in this, Deuteronomy is going to be this limbo state of ending one chapter and going into another chapter. And you realize that practically speaking, a lot of these books end on kind of positive notes. Theologically speaking, there's this very negative undertone and undercurrent going through these things because practically speaking, realistically speaking, we're still dealing with human nature. And there's been no cure for that yet. And it's important for you to remember that every single book in the First Testament is ending on these theological dark notes, even though circumstantially they seem positive until we get to the Gospels. And the Gospels are the only book that end on a positive note because the idea is that everything's pointing towards Christ. He's the only one that can solve this dark, negative theological undercurrent that's going through human history. And so that's the way that you kind of need to think about this conclusion here when it comes to the book of Numbers. And so in conclusion, Numbers records the failures of Israel, the failure to know Yahweh, the failure to truly trust Him, the failure to truly obey Him. Because they failed to trust and believe He had their best interests in mind, they failed to experience the life of the fullest and partake it. The numbers is all about a people who are missing out on credible blessings of God, not because God has failed to honor His promises, but because they trust to truly believe Him and embrace it. And that's very important. It's very important to understand that most of these books are making the argument that they fail to reap the blessings, not because God fails to honor his promises, but because they fail to trust him. And this is a, a lesson I'm constantly trying to communicate to my daughters, especially my oldest. So they'll do something and I'll be like, okay, because you disobeyed me and you didn't do this, we're not going to do whatever. And my daughter's like, but you promised. And she like has this meltdown, like I'm some horrible evil demon that came into her and just ripped, like, I mean, literally, that's the total overreaction. And I'm like, yes, technically in some ways I didn't really actually promise. But two, this is also dependent upon your obedience. You cannot act like that and treat your sisters this way and expect to have these kind of blessings. But it's very easy for us in our own lives to look at God and do the same thing. But you promised I would have hope and joy and peace. You promised all this kind of stuff. And God's like, yeah, but 
When was the last time you've really been putting what you've read in the Bible into practice? How often are you really doing this? Yeah, but you've got this thing in your life. And, and we do the same thing that we look at our children and think, oh my gosh, like, why don't you get this? It's the exact same that we're doing, but just in a more civilized way with our God and our heart. And you need to realize that that's why they miss out on the blessings. And that's the point that Numbers is making, that God has not failed to fulfill his promises. They have failed to trust him and to claim them. However, Numbers also shows the grace and mercy of God. And hopefully by now, you realize that those atheists in the people world are just full of crap when they tell you that the God of the First Testament is mean and evil and vindictive. Like, because hopefully by now, when you really read the stories and really pay attention to culture, you realize, oh my gosh, he's put up with all of that? I would have walked away from you a long time ago. Like, I would have called the cops on you a long time ago. Like, what the heck? How can he put up with this? And you realize that this is an incredible act of mercy as God. He keeps putting up with them. And he keeps walking with them. And how many times he says, I have every right to abandon you because you violated the covenant promise. And Moses just says, please don't. He's like, okay. Okay? Like, my daughters had to do a whole lot more begging that to give in, for me to give in. And even then, I don't usually give in. And so the reality is God is just so quick to just forgive because his first and primary character trait is a God of love and forgiveness. And it doesn't take much to get that because here's the reality. God is just and will execute punishments, but God is also a God that can be changed or point in a different direction through repentance. Not because he's a pushover, not because he's easily manipulated, not because they have him wrapped around his little finger, because there's still harsh consequences. And those are the scenes that the world throws at us and says, you're God. But because he also knows that he loves us so much and we need every chance that we can get. And he can give us those second chances in the right way where we are sometimes trying to figure out what the, how to actually work out the second chance with our people in our lives. And two, because he knows something that nobody else yet knows. The cross is coming. And the cross will be the greatest act of justice that will finally solve all this in a justice and mercy kind of sense. And you need to see that theme just as much as their sin. So Numbers ends on the plains, heading into the promised land. And so now next time we meet, we'll get into the book of Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, Moses is going to give three speeches. And one will be a summary of their wilderness generation, the second will be, how do we take the law and tweak it for actually living in the promised land? And the third speech will be, what can they expect and blessings and cursings if they do or do not do what God has laid out? And that's kind of the framework there. Any questions, comments? Is it beneficial? Good. That's the most important thing, that you walk away and know God better. Yahweh, we just praise you for who you are. We praise you for the amazing God that you are, the patient God that you are. We thank you for the book of Numbers and all of its strangeness of the, the weird stories, but the exciting events and even the laws are scattered in there. We thank you for the character that you display. And we pray that we can just learn to look at our own lives and that we can really invite you into our lives and really understand that you have so much that you want to offer us as well. And that if we could just trust you and obey you, we can experience so much 
that we're missing out because of disobedience or lack of trust. Or even making the mistake of Moses where we just don't go to you for figuring out a situation because it seems so innocent or so small that we figure we could figure it out on our own. And I pray that this book would just call us to be a people that we are just constantly going to you for every little thing, that we're constantly dependent upon you, that we're constantly searching out our hearts and figuring out where we're obedient and where we're not so that we can embrace and experience the most that we possibly can of who you are and what your blessings are. And I also pray that in the light of numbers, that we'd be able to be as obedient as we could so that we can be not legalistically right with you or be a good person, but that we would be the true image of God, expanding the garden and living in the promised land in such a way that other people want to be a part of that promised land as well. In Jesus' name, amen.